Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview Dr. Ken Pulliam. I know that if my children were separated from me and I had an opportunity to write them a letter to tell them how to get back to me, I certainly wouldn't do it in parables and language that's ambiguous enough that it can be interpreted a thousand different ways. I would do my best to make it crystal clear how they can find me. And if I would do that as a finite human being, certainly God, being infinite and being omniscient, could find a way to do that. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Ken Pulliam is a former Christian apologist with a Ph.D. in theology from Bob Jones University. He now writes the blog, Why I Deconverted from Evangelical Christianity, at formerfundy.blogspot.com. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, Luke. It's a pleasure to be with you. Ken, would you share with us your own faith journey? Absolutely. I was born in the Bible Belt, born in Georgia, to a family that traditionally had been Baptist. Around the age of 18, I converted to Christianity, went through the born-again experience, as it's called, made quite a radical change in my lifestyle. I'd been somewhat rebellious as a teenager, and this completely transformed me. I uh, entered a Baptist university in Atlanta, Baptist University of America, surrendered to be a Christian minister, and studied theology there, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in uh, 1981. And then I went ahead to Bob Jones University, which was held up to us in our environment as uh, one of the better Christian universities to attend. So I went there and earned a Master of Arts in uh, 82 and Ph.D. in theology in 1986. Lest anyone think that uh, my Christianity was just strictly an intellectual phenomenon, I was heavily involved in the local church, doing everything from uh, running the bus route to teaching Sunday school classes, to leading prayer meetings, to doing soul winning, all of the uh, things that were expected of a good Christian. And I did these not because I thought they were expected. I did them because I really wanted to. And at that particular time in my life, I felt that I had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I wanted to tell other people about it. I went immediately upon graduation to Tempe, Arizona, and taught in a Bible college there called International Baptist College, founded by James Singleton, who was also a Bob Jones graduate from the 1940s. Taught there for nine years, a small Bible college. Taught a range of subjects from New Testament Greek to systematic theology to English Bible classes. I also taught the class that they offered in apologetics, taught ethics, uh, introduction to philosophy, many different classes while I was there. I was there from 86 to 95, and in 95, I decided to leave that environment and become an assistant pastor at a local church in Arizona. So I left there, went to a church called Beth Haven Baptist Church, and was an assistant minister there for a couple of years. Sometime During my last couple of years of teaching, and then my two years as an assistant minister, I began to accumulate many doubts about the truth of evangelical Christianity, struggled with many different issues, and eventually came to the conclusion that 
what I had believed was not something that could be substantiated, not something that was truth. And so consequently, I had quite a traumatic emotional experience from that because I had uh, trained my entire life for this ministry, really had no other marketable skills, had a wife, uh, two children, a mortgage, and quite concerned as to what I was going to do. Yeah, but I uh, could not continue teaching and preaching something that I that I no longer believed. I just could not do that. So at the end of '96, I left the church and went into secular vocation, and had been there ever since. Uh, basically, the first probably ten years after I left the faith, I had little or nothing to do with Christianity. I just pretty much walked away. A couple of years ago, I got involved in some internet forums and discussion groups and only recently have taken a more active role. Now, why did you decide to take a more active role in discussing these matters? Well, uh, it's a good question. To be quite honest, one of the reasons that I didn't before was my parents uh, were both elderly very devoted Christians. I really didn't want to disturb them or undermine their faith. Not only that, I didn't feel any real urgency to evangelize for my position. When I was a Christian, I thought that I had to evangelize everyone. I had to convince them of the truth of my position. Being an agnostic, I um, I just don't have that evangelistic zeal. Well, and then why did you later decide to become more active than you had been? Probably because of some of the things that I was reading on the Internet uh, by Christian apologists. And as I read these these various arguments, I knew how faulty they were, and I felt like someone should be there. From the inside, you know, many of the people on the Internet who are atheistic or agnostic have never been Christians. They don't really understand how Christians think. I do. And I also thought that I had some unique arguments, experiences that I could bring to the table that would be more effective debunking some of the standard Christian teachings. Yeah. Well, my familiarity with Bob Jones University is that when I went to a Christian school growing up in Minnesota, all the textbooks there were from Bob Jones University Press. And I'm sure you're very familiar with those, but the science books said stuff like, if we observe in the world something that contradicts the Bible, the Bible's right and our observations are wrong, and all this kind of stuff. And they said that God created the light from the stars to make it look like it had been traveling for 13 billion years, all kinds of what I now consider to be crazy stuff. Uh, And in fact, until the year 2000, Bob Jones University would not allow interracial dating because they said that God had created people differently for a reason. So Bob Jones University is this incredibly fundamentalist university. What was your experience there in the 80s? Well, interestingly enough, while I was there, I think it was 82, is when the Supreme Court decision came down, which right. uh, which took away their tax exemption. So I was there during the middle of, of all of that. I have to say, Luke, that I was 21 when I entered the graduate school there and finished when I was 26. So I was young. And I had been thoroughly indoctrinated into the idea that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God, and therefore it is truth, and anything that disagrees with it must be an error. I accepted that. 
as regarding science, it was not part of my curriculum at Bob Jones, and so that particular area was not necessarily a stumbling block for me. Hmm. That's interesting. We'll get to what was a stumbling block for you in a moment, but I do want to ask you, we've been talking about fundamentalism. Where does that term fundamentalist come from, and what does it mean? That's a good question, and the term is greatly misunderstood today. Actually, it's evolved considerably since the 1920s when the term was first coined by a gentleman named Curtis Lee Laws. He was a newspaper reporter for the Watchman Examiner, and in the 1920s, there was controversy raging within a number of the denominations, specifically in this case, the Northern Baptist Convention around such doctrines as the virgin birth of Christ, the verbal inspiration of the scripture, the vicarious death of Christ, a number of different issues. Basically, all of the miraculous content of the Bible was being questioned. So the controversy that was raging at that point was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And that term came to be used because Curtis Law said that the conservatives are ready to do battle royal for the fundamentals of the faith. So a fundamentalist in the historic sense of the word is someone who holds to certain doctrines that they feel are essential or basic or fundamental to Christianity. Now, as time evolved, uh, somewhere in the 50s especially, the term fundamentalist came to be associated more with those who opposed the Billy Graham Crusades. Billy Graham was involved in ecumenical crusades, meaning that he had Roman Catholics, he had liberal Protestants, he had others who supported and participated in his crusades, and the converts were sent back into those churches. A number of individuals, such as Bob Jones Sr. and John R. Rice and a number of other folks at that time, thought that this was a violation of Scripture, and they opposed it, and they became known as fundamentalists, as opposed to, say, evangelicals who uh, saw no problem with it. As time went on, fundamentalists became more and more separated from other Christians, believing that they alone were the ones that had the truth and everyone else was compromising. And today, the term really is used for any kind of religious fanatic, whether that be a snake handler in Tennessee or whether it be an Islamic terrorist. But when I use the term fundamentalist, I'm using it in the historic sense of the word going back to the 1920s. There was also a series of pamphlets that were written about that time defending fundamentals or essential doctrines of the faith. And those pamphlets were put together into a book called The Fundamentals. So that also contributed greatly to the origin of the term fundamentalist. Right. And I think part of the context there, too, is that there was a battle between not necessarily fundamentalist Christians and atheists who were modernists, but more so fundamentalist Christians who wanted to hang on to the miracles and everything in the Bible versus liberal Christians like Harnack. You know, liberal Christianity was maybe even more popular then than it is now in some ways, and so that was kind of where the tension was, right? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, what was going on there, similar to what went on in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1980s, many conservatives got upset that there were liberals who denied what they felt were fundamental doctrines of Christianity, teaching in the seminaries, and in the case of the Southern Baptists, uh, they were able to root those people out, and, and now, for the most part, Southern Baptist seminaries are all extremely conservative, you might even say fundamentalist in the historic sense of the word. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, it was between Christians. It was not between uh, unbelievers or, or atheists and Christians. It, it was a, an intramural debate, if you will. Right, good. So, Ken, a lot of people deconvert from Christianity because they decide to look at it from the outside, so to speak, and they realize that it just doesn't make sense when you look at Christianity from outside Christianity. But you seem to have lost your faith because Christianity didn't even make sense from inside the bubble. What happened there? Well, a number of different things. As I mentioned, I was teaching in a Bible college and teaching theology and teaching apologetics. And when you teach, you get a lot of questions. You get a lot of questions from students. You get a lot of questions that, are, that, that you generate in your own mind. And I learned all of the had answers that were given to these questions and these objections by different evangelical or fundamentalist scholars or, or authors. But as a student would ask a question and as I was reciting my pat answer, I began to realize it really wasn't a satisfactory answer. It didn't satisfy me. And in particular, there was the whole matter of what I consider to be the heart and core of evangelical Christianity, and that is the idea that Jesus Christ died in my place, in your place, on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And as I began to think about that, I wondered how can an innocent person be punished in the place of a guilty person in any fashion that resembles justice? And I could not come up with a good answer to that. That was something that I struggled with and never was able, and still to this day, cannot, have not found any sort of satisfactory answer from Christians on that subject. We know inherently that that's unjust. Uh, would not be allowed in any human court if an individual commits a crime. And we're not talking about uh, a monetary debt or fine that could be paid by anybody. We're, we're talking about a serious crime such as murder, rape, something of that sort. If an individual commits that crime, justice demands that that individual pay the price for it. No one else can take his place. So I didn't see how it could be justified in the case of God. And an answer that I was commonly given was, well, God's ways are not our ways, and it's just really beyond our comprehension, and we just have to accept it by faith because that is clearly what the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. But as I thought about that, I realized, well, the Bible also teaches that man is made in the image of God. A consequence of that fact is that man has some innate sense of what is right and wrong, of what is just. And this is something, as I said, that man is born with. I mean, anyone that's been around children knows this is true because children are always saying, that's not fair, that's not right. They, they have a sense of what is fair and what is right. We all do. And the Bible says that comes to us as a result of being made in the image of God, which means that it should reflect God's own justice. Yet here is God punishing an innocent person in the place of a guilty person so that the guilty person can go free. And that was a contradiction internally within Christian theology that I could not reconcile. In addition, the Bible does not read like one would expect a divine revelation to read. Yeah. It condones genocide, it condones slavery, it uh, condones polygamy, the treatment of women's property, many things that in today's world we recognize as being unjust. In addition to that, the Bible is ambiguous enough that even Christians cannot agree on many of the foundational uh, doctrines. 
specifically how one is to be saved. You have the Church of Christ today, which claim to be strict adherents of a literal Bible. You believe that unless you're baptized by immersion, you cannot be saved. On the other hand, you have a Baptist, which was my tradition, that said that baptism was not a requirement for salvation, but rather faith. And then Baptists and other evangelicals would debate as to what true faith is. Some would say, as uh, John MacArthur does today, that true faith involves submission to the Lordship of Christ, and so unless you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, you don't really have faith. Others, such as uh, Zane Hodges from Dallas Theological Seminary and Charles Ryrie from Dallas Seminary, argued against that and said, no, that's really adding works to salvation, that uh, faith is just simply trusting Christ, believing the content of the gospel, does not involve any surrender of the will. Or I mean, Christians disagree on just about every doctrine there is. And I'm thinking, if the Bible is really a revelation from God, and if God really loves man and really wants to reconcile man to himself, would he not have made it much clearer how someone is to be saved? I know that if my children were separated from me and I had an opportunity to write them a letter to tell them how to get back to me, I certainly wouldn't do it in parables and language that's ambiguous enough that it can be interpreted a thousand different ways. I would do my best to make it crystal clear how they can find me. And if I would do that as a finite human being, certainly God, being infinite and being omniscient, could find a way to do that. So as I looked at the Bible, as I read it, as I studied it, I just came to the conclusion that it cannot be from a divine being. And another thing was the problem of natural evil. Many Christian apologists will try to explain away the problem of evil by saying, well, man has a free will and, and, you know, all of these bad things that happen to us happen to us because of uh, man's uh, free will gone wrong. But that doesn't explain natural disasters. What about the earthquake that just happened in Haiti? What about the tsunami? What about childhood cancer? None of these things can be attributed to man's free will. Either God created the world that way, which is what a theistic evolutionist or a progressive creationist would have to say, or it happened after fall of Adam. If you say it happened after the fall of Adam, then you must be a young earth creationist. And as I looked into that more, I realized that that was scientifically bankrupt and could not be defended. So, again, that was a problem that I could not resolve. Those are just three to highlight, Lee, some of the things that I struggled with. But in reality, I started my blog to systematically go through all of the different reasons, and it probably will take me years to do so. Well, I look forward to it. And I think the reasons that you've cited there are reasons that many Christians struggle with, but maybe they just come to a point of either passing off the problems as mystery or maybe accepting some of the pat answers that you didn't find satisfying. My experience is that most Christians do not think seriously about any of these matters. Even Christians within uh, fundamentalist churches which stress the idea that the Bible's uh, completely inerrant. Don't read the Bible. Uh, There was an evangelist that came through our church uh, one year. He was an evangelist to fundamentalist churches all over the country, and he had done a survey in those churches 
on a weeknight, I think maybe a Tuesday night or Wednesday night, when supposedly, you know, the best Christians in the church would be there, as to how many had read the Bible through completely. And after a year doing that survey, he came up with less than 5%. So the simple fact is most Christians don't read the Bible or study it seriously. They cherry-pick certain verses that sound good to them, but they really don't deal with these People who do struggle with them, you're right, they typically think it's a mystery, it's beyond my comprehension, God is infinite, God is holy, and so therefore whatever he does must be right, even if I can't understand it. To me, that requires uh, intellectual suicide. It requires a, a sacrifice of the intellect that I'm not willing to do. And I don't believe that if there is a God that he really wants us to do that. I mean, if there really is a God, he created us with the largest brain of any other creature, and I would expect that he wants us to use that brain. I think another possibility is that when they start having doubts, people find themselves in a situation like you found yourself, where you're trained for the ministry, you've got a job in the ministry, you've got believing family, believing spouse, you know, how are you supposed to even consider the possibility of abandoning something that's so core to everything that your life is about and everything that brings you joy? And I think that can be so frightening to people that if they start having doubts, they'll just push them out of their mind and not even think about it because the consequences, they're just too horrifying to consider. That's absolutely true. And in addition to that, it's a traumatic thing psychologically and emotionally to come to the realization that something that was such an important part of your life, I mean, my life revolved around Christ, the church, the Bible. To come to the conclusion that you've been wrong about all of this is really more than many people can handle. And so they just push these ideas into the back of their mind or they think, well, you know, maybe there's uh, someone somewhere that's got the answer. And so they read an apologist who gives a pat answer and they accept it and go on. Most people really don't want to think hard about religion. It's an emotional release. They get social benefits from it. And uh, to really wrestle in great detail with these issues is not something that very many Christians do. Now, another doubt that may occur to many Christians would concern the Trinity because it just seems like such a bizarre idea. What is the doctrine of the Trinity that you're familiar with? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity as it was discussed and detailed in the early church councils, Council of Nicaea, was the idea that there's only one God and that this God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When I was at Bob Jones University, I was taught it this way. The Bible teaches that there's only one God in many places. Secondly, the Bible teaches that the Father is fully God. The Bible teaches that the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God, eternally God. And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. And so the way to harmonize those four propositions is to say that there's one God who exists eternally in three persons. Now, of course, the Bible makes no attempt to explain this in any sort of philosophical way. So theologians going all the way back to Tertullian have made an attempt to try to explain this. And quite honestly, I find all of the explanations to be pretty much nonsensical. 
Nevertheless, it is uh, an orthodox doctrine. I think it was Tertullian who said that he that would understand the Trinity would lose his mind, but he that would deny the Trinity would lose his soul. (laughs) And so, again, these things were indoctrinated into me, and I accepted them. So as it related to the Trinity, uh, when, when people had questions, when students had questions about how this could be, basically my answer was, well, God is infinite, we're finite, we cannot hope to understand completely the person of God. It's just beyond our capacity, so we must just accept what the Bible teaches. The Father is God, the Son's God, the Spirit's God. Each one is a distinct personality, yet there's only one God. And even though that contradicts human reason and logic, we must subordinate our reason to revelation and believe what the scripture says. Obviously, that's not something that I was willing to accept either, because I cannot believe that God would contradict the laws of logic or or contradict reason in that sense. You know, theologians are pretty clever, and they are very good at trying to harmonize things, and essentially that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is, an attempt to harmonize these propositions that are found in the Bible. Yeah, well... That's a difficult task. I don't envy the theologians that task. Right. Now, Ken, a response from theists that we've heard on a number of fronts, whether it be about the Trinity or atonement or other issues like the problem of evil, is this idea that God is mysterious. Why don't you accept that answer? Well, as I said earlier, I don't believe that God would contradict the laws of logic, and I don't believe that the Bible is really a divine revelation from God, that he would put these contradictory teachings in the scripture. You know, a lot of atheists and agnostics will point out what they think are contradictions in the Bible, and and frankly, I think there are a lot of contradictions. For example, like in the the resurrection, whether it was two women at the tomb or whether it was one and, and various things of that sort. While all of those might have merit, to me, the more serious problem was the contradictory theologies mm-hmm. in the Bible. So why don't I just accept that God is a mystery and, and just accept all of it by faith? Well, I did for many years, but eventually I came to the conclusion that I was sacrificing my intellect, that I was swallowing something that was not coherent, and I could either choose to continue in intellectual dishonesty or I could go with what my reason was telling me, and I chose the latter. And for me, the way I think about it is that we have to use reason to decide what we're going to believe, whether you're picking between different Christian theologies or you're picking between theism and naturalism. That's the only option we have. So to say that you're just going to accept that something might be incoherent but then just believe it anyway then in that case, why not accept any of the other thousand theologies that are out there and apparently incoherent? I think that's that's no excuse because whether we're deciding that we're going to swallow an incoherent theology or we're deciding that we're going to do something else, we're always using our reason to make those decisions. Absolutely. And from my standpoint, the evangelical Christian is no different than the Mormon. The Mormon says that he believes the Book of Mormon is true not because it's been verified, not due to the evidence, not due to reason, but because he has prayed to the Heavenly Father and he's received a burning in the bosom that this book is truth. Uh, William Craig, the uh, well-known Christian apologist, 
says virtually the same thing with regard to the Bible, although he calls it the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, if you're going to sacrifice your reason, how do you make any decision in life? I mean, you, you must use reason, and I think that has to be applied to religion as well as any other discipline of study. So Ken, you mentioned a moment ago that the New Testament itself contains within it several different contradictory theologies. What are you talking about there? Well, specifically in the New Testament, and, and of course I could spend all day talking about how the theology of the Old Testament is different than the theology of the New Testament, and, and they really can't be reconciled. Uh -huh. But even within the New Testament, for example, you have, I think, a different plan of salvation in the Gospels through the teachings of Jesus versus the uh, writings of Paul. Paul was very adamant that salvation was by faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. However, when you read the Gospels and people come to Jesus, for example, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him how he can inherit eternal life, uh, what does Jesus say? Jesus says to sell all of your possessions and come and follow me. Now, it is true that the Gospel of John is very strong on the idea of belief or faith, but again, Gospel of John is the latest of the Gospels. I think you find a different person of, of Christ, if you will, the Christology, in the Gospel of John as opposed to the Gospels. Mm -hmm. The Gospel of John talks about Jesus being the Logos, being eternal, being the Creator, etc., etc. You find none of that in the Synoptic Gospels. The teaching of the Epistle of James, for example, I find to be completely different than what Paul's saying. James talks about how salvation is not by faith alone. So just many, many examples of this, I think, in the New Testament. And I think the logical conclusion is that the New Testament reflects the doctrines, the religious ideas of various uh, individuals. And therefore, as you would expect, there's some contradictions. If, however, it was really a revelation from God, if it was really divinely inspired, I don't think you would find those contradictions. I think that there would be harmony. I think there'd be coherence. I think there'd be consistency. Now, what would you say to the Christians who might want to think about these issues more seriously than they have in the past? Well, I would say, as Socrates is reported to have said, Follow the evidence wherever it leads. Don't be afraid to read opposing views. You know, most Christians are only going to read books that agree with their belief system. That's the safe thing to do, but that's no different than cults. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, are not allowed or are not supposed to read anything concerning religion that is not officially approved by the uh, Watchtower Society. Many fundamentalist Christians are almost the same. I would say be willing to read, be willing to think, be willing to look at other viewpoints, and then be willing to follow the truth wherever it leads. From a personal standpoint, I'm very happy as an agnostic. You know, someone says, well, how do you have any meaning in life? How do you have any purpose in life yeah. if you're an agnostic? Well, I think the purpose of life, I would agree with Thomas Jefferson. It's the pursuit of happiness. And in order to have happiness, you have to have life and you have to have liberty. Someone else has said that if you can find someone in life that loves you as much as you love them, that's about as good as it gets. So I find enjoyment, I find meaning in this world, not looking forward to another world. I find great joy and satisfaction and 
from my family, from my occupation now, from the everyday activities of life. Life itself is uh, enjoyable without having to postulate some afterworld experience. If there is an afterlife, and frankly, I don't know, I don't believe anyone knows, you know, then so be it. But at this particular stage, I need to learn to enjoy every day that I had on the earth because, quite frankly, it might be my last. Ken, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Luke, it was a pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity.